Now we come in chapter 11 of Leviticus to what I'm sure many of you are going to agree is one of the most unusual chapters that we have in the Bible. Actually now, as we leave the 10th chapter of Leviticus, we've come to what might be called a radical bifurcation in this book. The subject matter is no longer offerings and priests, but it changes from priests to people, from offerings to God to food for man, from worship before God to walk in the world. And the change is made, if you'll note, from the sacred to what is called the secular without any change of pace, any thought that there's anything different. We make today a false distinction between the sacred and the secular. We think that if it's in the church, why it's sacred. And I don't care what it is. Even gossip in the church seems to be sacred. And that if it's done outside, that it's secular. Now, I don't care who you are or what you're doing. You can wash dishes to the glory of God. You can dig a ditch to the glory of God. Someone has said, I want to dig a ditch so straight and true that even God can look it through. Anything you do, friends, and you can't make a distinction between sacred and secular. He just moves right out from that which we'd call sacred to that which is secular. Now, what is it that makes this chapter so unusual? Well, it's this. God gives a diet for the children of Israel to follow. And his people are to eat certain things. And they're to eat what he puts on the menu, and they're to not eat what he keeps off the menu. In fact, I think maybe I ought to ask a question. Here is an interrogation. Listen to this. Could the God of this vast universe be interested in what his creatures have for dinner? Could the one who orders all of creation prepare a menu for man? Now let me make a declaration, for this chapter will bear it out. God was, and he's interested in the details of the lives of his people. There's no detail that's too minute to escape his interest and concern. Someone said to the late Dr. G. Camel Morgan years ago, do you think we ought to pray about the little things in our lives? And Dr. Morgan, in his characteristic manner, said, Madam, can you mention anything in your life that's big to God? <laughs> May I say to you, you and I can divide in our lives big problems, little problems. Your problems and my problems are not divided that way before God. They're just little problems. And he wants us to bring everything to him in prayer. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything, was the injunction of Paul to the Philippians. Now, here in this menu that's given, and we're going to say some things about it, it has a very real and practical aspect. The fact of the matter is, we'll expect that what God tells his people there to eat will be good. What he tells them not to eat, will not be good, and that there will be a health factor here. Now, you and I are going to find great spiritual lessons here, because when God gives the people here 
They can eat certain animals. They cannot eat other animals. They can eat certain fish and not eat other fish. They can eat certain birds, but not other birds. You'll find that all the way through here. God forbade the eating of certain animals and permitted the eating of others. And there is a health factor involved here. And it was not a superstitious. It was more than a religious rite to make this distinction. Now, since God prescribed certain animals and he made a prohibition concerning others, there must be some benefit in following it. And history should demonstrate that God acted in an arbitrary fashion in setting up a line of separation between the clean and unclean, but that when he did act arbitrarily, he did it for the good of his people. Now, does history afford such illustrations as that? Well, the very interesting thing is the animals which were forbidden to be eaten were largely unclean feeders. And another factor that we should note is that the rejected animals are more liable to disease than others The unclean animal carries a parasite. Now, let me read a statement made by Dr. S.H. Kellogg. I'm quoting him now. He says, One of the greatest discoveries of modern science is the fact that a large number of diseases to which animals are liable are due to the presence of low forms of parasitic life. To such diseases, those which are unclean in their feeding will be especially exposed, while none will perhaps be found wholly exempt. And another discovery of recent times, which has a no less important bearing on the question raised by this chapter, is the new ascertained fact that many of these parasitic diseases are common to both animals and men and may be communicated from the former to the latter. That's the end of the quotation. And he goes on, however, to show specific cases. Now, he mentions, for instance, that the flesh of swine, they have the parasitic trichini, and that turkeys have the diphtheria, and they can communicate it to man. And horses have the loathsome disease known as the glanders. Now, evidently, Moses didn't know this. And certainly the physicians in Egypt didn't know it. But God knew it. And God made this distinction. Now, does this work out in history? Well, it does. But let me give another quotation from Dr. Noel de Muzzi of the Paris Academy of Medicine way back in 1885. Listen to him. The idea of parasitic and infectious maladies, which has conquered so great a position in modern pathology, appears to have greatly occupied the mind of Moses and to have dominated all his hygienic rules. He excluded from Hebrew dietary animals particularly liable to parasites. And as it's in the blood that the germs are spores of infectious disease circulate, he orders that they must be drained of their blood before serving for food. How did Moses know that? Well, Moses didn't know it, but you see, God did. 
this has worked out in history. The plague, for instance, that was desolating Europe years ago. And again, I'm quoting from Dr. Kellogg. He says, "...the Jews so universally escaped infection that by their exemption the popular suspicion was excited into fury, and they were accused of causing the fearful mortality among their Gentile neighbors by poisoning the wells and springs. And they enjoyed almost total immunity at that time of the plague. And then Professor Hosmer writes, "...throughout the entire history of Israel, the wisdom of the ancient lawgivers in these respects has been remarkably shown. In times of pestilence, the Jews have suffered far less than others as regards longevity and general health. They have in every age been noteworthy. And at the present day in the life insurance offices, the life of a Jew is said to be worth much more than that of men of other stocks. And then Dr. Berens in Prussia, he says, "...the mean duration of Jewish life averages five years more than that of the general population." Now, of course, today, with the Jew breaking over on this diet, why, the gap has been closed. But actually, there are times when their lifespan was twice that of their Gentile neighbors. I could give more quotations than this, but you need to note here that there was a very real basis for God giving these laws on diet and that there was a health factor that was involved here. Today, though, we're told very definitely that you can eat anything you want to. If you'll notice that Paul said in Romans 14, 14, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean to him, it's unclean. They can rattlesnake meat down in San Antonio, Texas. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're going to have me over for dinner, let's not have a can of rattlesnake meat. I wouldn't care for it. Have an ocean you wouldn't either, but apparently somebody's eating it. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, 8, "...but meat commandeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse." It's nonsense today to talk about there's some spiritual value in eating or not eating a certain food. In fact, it's a superstition when you approach it like that. Though whatever we do, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10:31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now let's turn and look at this, because this is a great chapter in many, many ways. And we have come now to a new section, and we're going to see holiness in the daily life of God's people. Now we have here in chapter 11 the food of God's people. We'll have clean and unclean animals on the land clean and unclean creatures in the waters, clean and unclean flying creatures in the air, and then clean and unclean creeping creatures on the ground. And there's some bugs you can eat if you want to. I don't care for them either. We're told, whatever you want to eat, you eat. Well, there are a lot of these things I don't want to eat.
Now, let me read verses 1 and 2, and we're looking at clean and unclean animals. And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying unto them, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the beasts which ye shall eat among the beasts that are on the earth. Now, you see, God draws here a strict line of demarcation between the animals to be eaten and those that are not. God is the one, by the way, who makes the difference between light and darkness. After the first day, the second day, the third day, he saw it as good, and he divided the light from the darkness. God does that. He divides night and day, divides black and white, right and wrong, clean and unclean. Somebody says to me today, well, how do you know what's right? What's right is what God says is right. He makes the rules. This is his universe. Do you know any better rules to make than the ones he's made? How about in the physical realm? Why don't you take a good run and start and jump off of this earth and defy the law of gravitation and overcome it? Man has done it and gone to the moon, but it costs him about 15 or 20 million dollars to do that. That's expensive. And that's a trip that I couldn't take myself. It would really deplete my bank account. But why don't you just take a running start? You want to defy God? Well, he made the rules, friends. He made the law of gravitation. And you just don't come along and make your own rules in his universe. He makes the rules for the physical universe. He makes the rules for the moral universe. And we today like to be broad-minded. We like to say, well, this is not right, nor is it wrong. This is not evil nor is it good. We follow a gray line. Well, that's not the way God does it. He draws the line. He makes a distinction. And he says very clearly, even at the very beginning, he made this distinction. He said to Noah in Genesis 7, "...of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens." Why? That it be offered as a sacrifice. And he's to keep, of course, two of them. Now, You'll notice that the choice of edible animals, fish and fowl, follow generally the pattern of civilized man down through the centuries to the present day. That's no accident. You see, God made a distinction. There's certain animals you want to eat and some you don't want to eat. And there's another feature which should be noted. Certain animals were probably healthful in that land and in that day which might not be elsewhere today. And for that reason, this is not for us today, because whether you eat meat or don't, meat won't commend you to God today. And the contrary, of course, might also be true. Now, there are great moral issues that are involved in this chapter. Man lives in a world of sin, and God requires a recognition of this fact. Choices must be made. And I think the moral objective is primary. You remember that when that sheet was let down from heaven and Simon Peter on the roof there in Joppa, he was told, rise, slay, and eat. And you remember what he did. He says, not so, Lord. And God says, don't you call unclean that which God is called clean. In other words, God makes the rules. And there is a tremendous moral lesson. And man has to make a distinction today, and he has to make a decision. Now, notice how God does it. Verse 3, "...whatsoever parteth the hoof, and is cloven-footed, and cheweth the cud among the beasts, 
that shall ye eat. And this is a rule to be followed to determine the animals to be eaten. Animals that did not meet these specifics were excluded as unclean. And if you want to know how important this matter of diet is, we'll find it's repeated again in the 14th chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 6. And there God said, "...and every beast that parteth the hoof and cleaveth the cleft into two claws and cheweth the cud among the beasts that ye shall eat." Now, we are told again in Deuteronomy 14, "...these are the beasts which ye shall eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the hart, the roebuck, the fallow deer, the wild goat, the pygarg, and the wild ox, and the shamans." Obviously, you see, they were the animals that were in that area in that day. And this repetition in Deuteronomy, I think, just emphasizes the importance of the clean and the unclean. And in Leviticus, the division of clean and unclean, though not a new commandment, it's sharply drawn. And it doesn't necessarily follow what we would call scientific or biological division, because that's not the purpose of it. But it had a health value, of course. And we find that the distinction does not follow the line of heathen nations that attributed the creating of certain animals to a good god, while others were the product of a bad god. The Persians had that viewpoint. God created all animals, and neither did the nature of the animal as representing some sin or virtue make the distinction. For instance, the lion here is considered an unclean animal, but that lion represents the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's not some mysterious connection between the soul and the body that you find in these heathen cults and some of our cults today. The nature of the animal is not transferred to the eater of it. That is a superstition today. I heard it said of a certain man, well, the reason he's like is he's eaten too much meat. That's made him cruel. That's nonsense. Because some of these vegetarians are pretty mean folks sometimes. I've found that out. Now, will you notice as we move on down, I think I probably ought to call attention to this. The one that parteth the hoof, that has to do with the walk. And chewing of the cud has to do with masticating the Word of God. And that is exactly what is said in Psalm 1-2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now, that word meditate means to chew the cud. The great spiritual lesson here is we are to walk worthy of the high calling wherewith we're to walk. We should have a parted hoof, if you please. And by the way, have you ever looked at man in this connection? These folk today say man is an animal, and as far as his chassis is concerned, there are certain similarities. But you know man would be an unclean animal. He doesn't chew the cud, because it was mostly those that were plant-eating animals that chew the cud. And man doesn't part the hoof, by the way. But the parting of the hoof has to do with a separated life. And chewing the cud has to do with the Word of God. The Word and the walk will identify a child of God today, the clean one, if you please. And today, what a marvelous, wonderful spiritual lesson that you have here. And the emphasis is 
put upon the study of the Word of God and the walk of the believer that go together. You remember Paul says, "...but thou hast known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, patience, persecutions, affliction, which came to me at Antioch, and so on, I endured." But out of them all the Lord deliver me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But right tied next to that, he says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus." My friend, the walk of the believer is tied up with the Word of God. And if you're going through this world, you'll have to chew the cud, the Word of God, and you'll have to have that separated walk that only the Word can produce. They both go together. The diet list is repeated over in Deuteronomy, with the one exception that we're told what animals you're not to eat here, what they were to eat there. And so... We have been looking at that, and the way that you could tell a clean animal had to be one that would chew the cud and part the hoof. And man wouldn't be a clean animal on either count. But there is a great spiritual lesson for us that we can be a clean animal. The chewing of the cud is masticating the Word of God, and the parted hoof has to speak of the walk of the believer in the world. What kind of tracks are we making? I remember hearing the story of the black man years ago that someone started to hand him a track, and he said, what is it? And they said, a track. He handed it back. He said he didn't want to read it. He said, I'll just watch your tracks. May I say to you, the believer should have the parted or the divided hoof. There should be the walk that would be well-pleasing to God. We're told to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. Now, in verse 4 through 8, he lists here some of the animals they were not to eat. And I think probably I'll just run down the list. You have, first of all, mentioned here the camel. The government today, by the way, has been warning about smoking camels, that is, about smoking cigarettes, and God warned about eating a camel. Now, frankly, I do not think that man ought to have an appetite for either one. The reaction would be immediately when God says, you're not to eat a camel. Well, who would want to eat a camel? I think this adds a little humor to what our Lord said when he accused the Pharisees of straining in a gnat and swallowing a camel. And what he was saying to them were that they were really breaking the Mosaic law themselves by swallowing a camel. The camel, therefore, is not only a lumpy creature, but he's also an unclean creature. Then the coney. Coney is something like a rabbit, and the hair of the rabbit was forbidden to eat. It's quite interesting to me today that those who emphasize the fact you're not to eat pork or not to eat swine meat, Yet, I never hear them talking about not eating rabbits. Well, they're ahead of the swine here in the list. Now, the swine, by the way, divides the hoof, but does not chew the cud. The pig, of course, is constantly eating and chewing, and somebody may get the impression he's chewing his cud. No, he's not. He's just eating. That's all. The fact is that a great 
many folk are delighted to know that pork can be eaten today. It's believed that it produces an itchy skin and was a contributing factor to leprosy. But we need to recognize man today can eat anything. But he's an unclean animal. That is the important thing to note. And he's an unclean feeder also. Now we have here in verses 9 to 12, clean and unclean creatures that are in the water. And the distinction here is much easier than among animals, by the way. It says, "...these shall ye eat of all that are in the water, whatsoever hath fins and scales in the waters, in the seas, in the rivers, them shall ye eat." And then he goes on to make that distinction. The basis here is between clean and unclean. And there's a sharp line drawn here. The clean fish are water creatures. They have two visible marks. They must have fins and scales to be clean. And fish that meet this requirement are good to eat. Crawling creatures in the water, for instance, were forbidden. And that would eliminate a great segment of the creatures of the waters, by the way. There are no examples given of fish that are clean or unclean. And I suppose the reason was that this was a pretty clear-cut distinction that was made here. And they got fish out of the Mediterranean Sea. They got fish out of the Sea of Galilee and out of the Jordan River. The fact of the matter is that they had a gate called the Fish Gate. That's where the fish were brought in from the Mediterranean. And Nehemiah had a real problem there keeping these fishermen from bringing in their fish on a Sabbath day. And then the Lord Jesus, you remember, told about the kingdom of heavens like a net cast into the sea, gathereth every kind, which when it was full they drew to shore, and they began to cast the bad away and keep the good. What was the distinction? Well, here it is. The method of determining good from bad fish was not the kind of fish. It wasn't white fish or blackfish, and it wasn't whether they were large or small. Size had nothing to do with it. And the very fact is that the fish had to have both fins and scales. That was the method of separating. A believer's one whose propelling is by the Holy Spirit. And then also a Christian is one who's clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so... These are the two identifying marks. What tremendous spiritual lessons that are here. Now, we have clean and unclean flying creatures, that is, birds. And this, to me, is almost humorous here. These are they which ye shall have an abomination among the fowls. They shall not be eaten. They're an abomination. And now the names are given here. An eagle and an ossifrage, an osprey, a vulture, kite, and so on. The names are given. There is no clear distinction other than this, that you'll notice the unclean birds. There are no really visible markers except one, I would say, and that is that they are unclean feeders. These are the unclean birds of Palestine, and they're in other places too. I think this is another point that reveals the Mosaic system was not only intended for the nation Israel of that day, but for the 
particular land of Palestine. It wasn't made for our day. And yet there are certain birds that they were told not to eat. They are around today. The ossifrage and the osprey, that's two birds. You know what they are? Would you know a ossifrage or a osprey if you saw one? Well, I didn't know until I started going down to Florida what an osprey is. And I found out down there the osprey is a pretty common bird. And he's a fish hawk, actually. An ossifrage, by the way, is a sea eagle. I never saw any of them, wouldn't know one of them, and I'm not sure I'd know an osprey. I know where Osprey Street is in Sarasota, and I found out there's an Osprey Street Avenue in about every place of any size in Florida. It's a very common bird, by the way. But I wouldn't know the bird. I, years ago, had a very fine neighbor, and he was a Seventh-day Adventist. He and I, frankly, had a lot of fun together. He was always going after me about eating pork and going after me about the Mosaic Law, of course, the Ten Commandments. And he was quite vocal at times about the observance of the Sabbath day and the law concerning this eating of pork. So I was studying this particular section here. So I frankly went over and looked him up at his home one evening. And I said, by the way, have you ever eaten an ossifrage or an osprey? Well, he said, I don't know. I don't think I have. He said, I wouldn't know one. I said, well, brother, you better find out what an osprey or an ossifrage is, because did you know that they're forbidden just like a pig is forbidden? And I said, you're pretty careful about not eating pork. Suppose I'd invite you over to my house, and I'd put before you a baked ossifrage or a fried osprey and you didn't know what it was, and you'd eat it. I said, did you know you'd be breaking the law? And I want to tell you that I had that brother go in there for a while because he began to look up these two birds, found out they are forbidden here in Leviticus. And then he told me one day, he says, I want you to know I've looked up the osprey and the osifrage, and I think now I'm on my guard. I'll not be eating those two. Well, I said, I'm glad to hear that. But I didn't go on with the others that are mentioned here. There's the vulture, the kite, the raven. The raven is what we call the crow today, a certain kind of a crow, not old crow, by the way. And it's forbidden. There was a time in Texas, they had so many crows, they tried to make it popular to eat them, and some of the hotels served them. A friend of mine was invited to speak at a banquet, and he thought it was unusually strange meat. He said it was like chewing gum. He said the more... He chewed it, the bigger it got. And he said, you know, he said, I didn't know what I was eating. Finally, he says, I leaned over to ask the toastmaster. I said, what in the world are they serving here in the banquet tonight? What is the meat that we have? Oh, he says, that's crow. And he said, that's all I needed to know. He said, I was so sick. I had to go outside of the building. In fact, I had to retire to the back of the building. He said, I was sick. Well, I wouldn't want to eat a raven. The Lord has certainly listed the birds I'd like to leave off my menu, but there are people that eat some of these. And today, whether you eat meat or don't eat meat, it doesn't make any difference. Meat won't command you to God. You just eat what you want. But the point is, it was teaching Israel, by the way, to make a distinction. And that's important. They had to make a decision, you see. 
about this. This one's clean, this is unclean. You have to make decisions today as a believer, by the way, about your conduct. You have to make a decision whether you accept Christ or not, whether you're going to study the Word of God, whether you're going to walk in the way that's well-pleasing to Him. All of this is here. Now we come to a section beginning at verse 20 to 23. We have clean and unclean creeping creatures. And you can leave all of these off my menu, but there are certain things you could eat. It says, "...all fowls that creep going upon all fours shall be an abomination unto you." And I certainly will go along with that. But there are some that they could eat. In verse 22, "...even these of them ye may eat, the locust after his kind, the ball locust after his kind, the beetle after his kind, the grasshopper after his kind." Now, there are those that consider that these are four different kinds of locusts that the locust that's mentioned is just the regular species. Then the ball locust would be a regular species with a protuberance on his head. And then the beetle was a regular species with a protuberance with a tail. And the grasshoppers, not really our species, but the locust species with a tail and without a protuberance. So that you probably have here four different kinds of locusts and they were permitted to eat them. Now, again, if you're having me over for dinner, let's not have fried grasshoppers. Not that there's anything religiously or ceremonially wrong in eating them, but I don't care for them. God, though, says you can eat them if you want them. And these were the things that they were to be very careful of. Now we're told all other flying and creeping things which have four feet shall be an abomination under you. Now we have here another very interesting section. We have contact with the carcasses of unclean animals. And that goes from 24 to 38. And I'll just have to lift out some very specific things that are here. They were not to touch the carcass of an unclean animal. And the reason is, this is an entirely new section. And it's so new that we need to note that not only was Israel forbidden to eat unclean animals, but they were forbidden to touch the carcass of an unclean animal. And contamination of a contact is the principle here. This was a great principle of life that was restated in the days of the return of Israel after the captivity. And I want to go into this for just a moment because it's rather important. Now, the principle that is set before us here is that contact with the unclean will make the individual unclean. And you'll recall that this was a law that was acted upon in the days of Haggai the prophet. The priests were asked concerning a law if one bare holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. In other words, contact with that which is holy won't make you holy. But notice, then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body, Touch any of these, shall he be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Now, the principle is just simply this. 
when the clean touches the unclean, what happens? Does the clean communicate anything? Not a thing. You can't rub goodness in. It isn't rubbed in like that. But what happens is that the unclean can affect the clean. An unrighteous man cannot do righteous works which are acceptable to God. This is a law that operates in every realm. I think in the natural realm, a gallon of dirty water will not be made clean by pouring into it a gallon of clean water. On the other hand, a drop of dirty water will contaminate the clean water. It's also true in the physical realm. Here's a boy that's got measles. Well, he isn't cured by bringing a well boy in who does not have measles and let him contact the boy that has measles. Well, if he does, you know what happens. The well boy gets the measles. This is a tremendous principle. And the child of God today walks through a world where he can become contaminated and the walk is all important. This idea today that a Christian can move out and can dabble in this world of drugs and of drinking and carousing. I remember that a young couple, they weren't married, they were going together, and they were going to nightclubs, and they were going to reach the lost. Well, did they reach the lost? No, the girl came in one night drunk as she possibly could be. May I say to you that Jude says in days of apostasy, the others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. This idea today, you and I can mix and mingle with this sort of thing, is a terrible mistake. Now, we come into verse 32, and I'm just hitting high points now. And upon whatsoever any of them, when they are dead to fall, it shall be unclean. Now, when a little varmint, for instance, falls into a pot or pan in the kitchen, what happens? Well, if it's an earthen vessel, they were to break the pot and throw it away. If it was bronze, they were to scour it good. You see that what we've done now, we've left the dining room and we enter the kitchen where the meal is prepared, and an unclean creature could fall into an earthen jar and just ruin the meal, you see. And God taught his people cleanliness and the preparation of food. That is something it took man a long time to learn apart from the Word of God. We are told also, if an unclean animal should fall, now notice this at verse 36, nevertheless a fountain or pit wherein there's plenty of water shall be clean, but that which touches their carcass shall be unclean. Now if a carcass falls into a great big lake, it won't make the lake unclean. No. And isn't that interesting? The Lord Jesus Christ is that fountain or lake, friends. He could touch a leper and heal him. He didn't get the leprosy. What a picture you have here of him. Now, we are told that seed that is to be sown, if a carcass touch it, it won't hurt it. The seed has a shell on it. But suppose it's been soaked in water, the seed has, and that shell is gone. Then the seed's unclean and should be thrown away. Now, the child of God today needs an armor in this world. Put on the whole armor of God, we're told. And if you and I are going out to rub against a lost world, we'll need the armor of God. Now, we have the contamination of creeping creatures 
way down at the end of this chapter. And every creeping thing that creepeth on the earth shall be an abomination, it shall not be eaten. All creeping things were unclean, as they were representative of the fall of man. It was the curse pronounced upon the serpent, on your belly you shall go. God says, let these creeping things alone. What a lesson that we have here. Then will you notice this chapter concludes, this remarkable chapter. This is the law of the beasts and of the fowl and of every living creature that moveth in the waters and of every creature that creepeth upon the earth to make a difference between the unclean and the clean, between the beasts that may be eaten and the beasts that may not be eaten. It's God who makes the sharp distinction between the clean and the unclean. And holiness in little things is therefore essential. And it becomes, I think, the real test for God's man. You see, the acid tests of any life, of any of God's people, God says, I am your Lord. I'm holy. Be ye holy. And we are distinguished by the world today. And my friend... You have to make a decision whether you're going to walk with God and for God in the world today. What a lesson is in this chapter of clean and unclean animals. And by the way, the next chapter is just as remarkable as this one. We come now to the twelfth chapter of Leviticus. It's a very brief chapter, only eight verses. And what a contrast to the last chapter on diet which was 47 verses. But it's nonetheless important. In fact, in one sense, it could be considered more important. Now, in chapter 11, the last chapter, we saw the fact that there was contamination of sin by contact with that which was wrong or sinful. In other words, it was the external character of sin emphasized And you and I live in a world surrounded by sin. That's our environment today. Now, this chapter places the emphasis on the internal character of sin. Not only do we become sinners by contact, but we are sinners by birth. And this chapter is the law concerning motherhood, the transmission of sin by inheritance, Sinners by birth. And the very nature that we inherit is a fallen, sinful nature. David said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the picture. This chapter is in the field of obstetrics, and the one on diet was in the field of pediatrics. The great physician today, our Lord, is a specialist in both fields. He's the chief obstetrician, and he's the chief pediatrician today for us. Now, the pagan peoples of that day and later days, they entertain rather superstitious notions about the uncleanness of women in childbirth. And... There's not a shred of that notion in the Levitical economy. And I hope we can see that as we consider this chapter. It was also a pagan practice to place 
women in an inferior position to man. This law does not contain a breath of that idea, as the Mosaic economy is actually that which lifted up womanhood and a noble motherhood. And that was in contrast to the base heathenism and paganism that was about these people. Now, obviously, again, there were certain hygienic benefits which were here in the practice of these God-given laws, just as we saw in the matter of diet. In other words, God was at the same time helping his people, but he was teaching his people then as well as today a great truth, a great spiritual truth, that we are born in sin. Now, there is a doctrine that is certainly rejected today, and it's the doctrine of the total depravity of man. My position is that today man doesn't believe in the total depravity of man, but he's sure demonstrating it. Look on the campuses of the colleges of this country. Look at that crowd. My friend, they demonstrate the total depravity of mankind. And you look at man anywhere today. That is something that is quite obvious. We are told in Romans 5:12, "...wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all men have sinned." This is a very important chapter, friends, that we're looking at now. Now, friends, will you listen very carefully to what we're going to have to say? Because this is as contrary to our notions today of motherhood as anything possibly could be. In fact, it conflicts with the popular notion of motherhood and the little baby. Thank God we're moving away from that sentimental notion. A few years ago, anybody that opposed motherhood, believe me, they were to be looked down upon. And Mother's Day in the church was a sentimental sort of a drivel. I've never dreaded any sermon during the year. In fact, every other day I've loved, but not Mother's Day. And you say, well, that's strange. And I'll tell you why it's strange. Because on that day, an old godless reprobate brings Mama to church. And he sits next to Mama, and he expects the preacher to give some sentiment that will make it possible for him to go to heaven tied to Mama's apron string, and it is just filled with emotion. And I never dealt in that sort of thing. I thank God I look back now on 40 years of ministry, and I never preached a sentimental Mother's Day sermon I never pointed people to mother instead of to Christ. We've had so much of that today. And I suppose Whistler's mother has been an example as she sits in the rocking chair. And that was the ideal mother for years. I heard a little story. It's a whimsical story about a picture of Whistler's mother. She was standing up washing the dishes for a change. And when Whistler walked in, he says, "'Mother, you're off your rocker.'" And I'm of the opinion that that's the opinion a great many people had a mother, by the way. Now, the world therefore thinks of a little child that's born into a home, and the mother holding it is just about the most beautiful picture there is in the world. And 
You feel like when you see that picture of a mother holding a little baby to her breast that you can just flap your wings and move right into heaven. What absolute nonsense! And God says it differently. In fact, God says it like it is. Now, if you're not prepared to hear it like it is, you better tune me out right now, friends, because the world thinks of innocence, virtue, and goodness in a picture of a young mother holding a sweet, smiling, cuddly baby in her arms. And the artist paints that picture, and he's applauded for his acute ability to interpret human nature. Well, God paints a different picture, an opposite portrait in this chapter. There's the young mother holding the precious baby, but it's not a picture of innocence and sinlessness. It's a picture of uncleanness and sin. Do you know what happened? That mother brought into the world a sinner. That's all she could bring into the world, for she's a sinner. And the papa is a sinner, too, probably worse than any. May I say to you, this is different than the world thinks of it. Dr. Kellogg has this to say. He says, "...in the birth of a child, the special original curse against the woman is regarded by the law as reaching its fullest, most consummate and significant expression." For the extreme evil of the state of sin into which the first woman by that first sin brought all womanhood is seen most of all in this, that now woman, by means of those powers given her for good and blessing, can bring into the world only a child of sin. And you remember, that was what God said to woman at the beginning. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband. He shall rule over thee. Not only would the woman travail in bringing a child into the world, but the chances are that child would be a heartbreak to her, because that child is a sinner. Now, that's, I think, what Paul had in mind when he put down certain regulations concerning woman's place in public worship. He says, "...I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence." And the thing he's talking about is the place of doctrinal leadership in the church. And I think the reason is twofold. First, Adam was created, then later Eve was created. And then Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And this hasn't anything in the world to do with the superiority of man over woman, because it's not true. But it's a matter of order and headship. In the second place, the woman was first in the transgression. She was the leader there. Man followed her wittingly while she had sinned unwittingly. And I think that's the thought of Paul in making that statement. The woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, this doesn't keep women from being saved. And the fact that a Christian mother travails in the birth of her child, it's an evidence of God's judgment, but it doesn't mean she loses her salvation. Paul confirms this. Nevertheless, or notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Just because she brought a sinner into the world, 
And we needn't condemn a mother for that if they continue in faith and love and holiness with sobriety. She's not saved by childbearing, but she is saved through childbearing. That would not prevent her from being saved. She does not become unclean and lose her salvation by bringing a sinner into the world. Now, a Christian mother, therefore, a great many people interpret that passage when Paul said to the Philippian jailer, "...believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved in thy house." That it means your children are saved just because you're saved. Well, a mother may be a saved mother, but she brings into the world a little sinner. My friend, when my mother brought me into the world, all she brought into the world was about eight pounds of sin. That's all. She never brought a little innocent baby into the world. She brought a sinner. That is something that's lost sight of today. We've got too many parents that think, my, I'm bringing up a precious little thing that's sort of a cross between an orchid and a piece of Dresden china, and don't you dare touch his little umph because you'll thwart his personality. And friends, we've got them today that have been parading over the campuses looking like a bunch of nuts, if you ask me. And we talk about the innocent little children that are going to college. My friend, I went to college, and I wasn't innocent. None of my crowd was. We weren't like the crowd today, it's true, but we could have been, and we would have been if we'd have thought we'd have got by with it. May I say to you that discipline is broken down in the home because parents think they're bringing up a little sweet flower in the home, and all they got is a stinkweed. That, my friend, is what you and I are, and that's what we brought up in this world. My daughter said to me one time, I ask her again and again, are you saved? Are you sure you trust Christ? And she asked me one time, she says, why do you keep asking me that? I said, I just want to make sure. Oh, if somebody said, well, she's your daughter. She listen to you preach. She ought to be saved. Yes, I know, but I want to make sure, friends, because she's got my nature. <laughs> and I happen to know that nature. Mine's a lost nature. And she's in no unusual position. My, what a picture that you have here. Then somebody's going to say, well, if that's a little sinner that's come into the world, then what about that? If the little one dies in infancy, what about it? It's lost because it's a sinner? No, in Adam all die, and that's the reason the little one died, is that never committed a sin. But wait just a minute. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Suffer the little ones to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he said, Their angels are before my Father. That's not the translation, friends. It's not angels. Their spirits are before my Father. In other words, he says, When that little infant dies, the spirit goes to be with Christ. Why? Because... He's the one that came down and died for sinners. And the little one hasn't reached the age of accountability. The minute it does, then it has to make the decision. We saw decisions in the last chapter. Here's for those that are not able to make decisions. There's an epitaph that Robert Robertson put on the graves of four of his children that died. Listen to this. It's a quaint sort of a thing. Bold infidelity turn pale and die. Beneath this stone four infants' ashes lie. Say, are they lost or saved? 
If death's by sin, they sin, for they lie here. If heaven's by works in heaven, they can't appear. Reason, ah, how depraved. Revere the Bible's sacred page, the knots untied. They died for Adam's sin. They live, for Jesus died. Oh, my friend, what a wonderful truth. Now, probably the first thing that I ought to do is to show you the division that we've made of this chapter. We have the cleansing of the mother at the birth of a male child, the cleansing of the mother at the birth of a female child, and then the cleansing of the mother by bringing a sacrifice for atonement. And let me read now the first two verses. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days according to the days of the separation of her infirmity. Now, actually, there were 40 days that she was to be unclean. But the first seven days she was to be unclean, but on the eighth day, the child, a male child, was to be circumcised. And we're told here in verses 3 and 4, "...and in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, and then she shall continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled." Isaiah said this in Isaiah 43:27, "Thy first father hath sinned." Now the mother was made unclean, according to the Levitical ritual, because she's brought a sinner into the world. Why, Eve thought she brought the Savior into the world. She says, we're going to call him Cain. I've gotten the man from the Lord. She got the man, I'll tell you. She got a murderer, and they've been doing that ever since. May I say to you that this injunction of the Levitical ritual here, womanhood was reminded that they were bringing into the world the same kind of babies that Eve brought into the world. They were all inherently sinners, and they're going to run undisciplined. They'll be revolutionaries. They will be sinners that will adopt what's called a new morality, which is old-fashioned sin. And they will go into that unless they are disciplined, my friend. This whole philosophy of life has been entirely wrong. We need to start raising children by the Scripture and not by Dr. Spock. That's the problem now for my entire time of ministry. I have seen parent after parent bringing them up like this. Now, I'm not going into a great deal of detail here. However, I probably should call your attention to the fact that the first seven days, you'll notice that the child was kept back and was not circumcised. Circumcision was the badge given to Abraham. Now, on the eighth day, he was circumcised. And on that day, the mother was to remain unclean. Then for 33 more days, the first seven days, she's reminded that she has come from Adam. The last 33 days, she's come from Abraham. Abraham, after all, was first the son of Adam. 
He was born outside the covenant himself, and he had to come by faith. Therefore, natural birth does not bring a man into a right relationship with God. Natural birth separates a man from God, my friend. When you're born into this world, you're born into a race of sinners, alienated from God. And my friend, God would be just and righteous to judge this entire world. He would have been just and righteous to have judged Adam and put him into eternal darkness. And if God had done that at that time, the angels would still sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And if God had, instead of sending his Son into the world, had he sent the avenging angel of death into the world, the angels would still be saying, Holy, holy, holy. God owes you nothing. He owes me nothing today. You and I have come into this world as sinners alienated from God. And may that great truth get in on Mother's Day instead of all of this sentimental rot about, well, my mother was such a wonderful person and I'm going to heaven because she's a wonderful person. Now, if your mother is a child of God through faith in Christ, she'll go to heaven. But you won't go to heaven until you put your faith in Jesus Christ, my friend. When my mother brought me into the world and your mother, believe me, friends, they were unclean because they did it. They brought a sinner into the world. I wonder if I get that over today. Or maybe you've already tuned me out, friends. And I'm just not going into a great deal of detail about the birth of a male child. We've seen that, the birth of a female child, which is just twice as long for the uncleanness. And the mother then had to bring a sacrifice for atonement. You see, definitely she was not saved, you see, just by bringing children into the world. She had to have a sacrifice. And a mother must trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, then she's prepared to raise a child as a sinner that needs to accept Christ. Oh, how the home needs that today, but I'm afraid it's too late. The radicals are running riot in this country today. And many of them came out of so-called Christian homes, but they were very sentimental. You remember when the Lord Jesus was born? His mother brought turtle doves because the poor brought turtle doves. And she had to have an offering, because she was a sinner. You see, she was not sinless. She brought an offering, but none for him. As far as we can tell from the Word of God, as far as the record is concerned, he made no offering while he was here upon this earth. Why? Because he was the offering for the sin of the world. He was the Lamb of God. And we can still say, Mary had a little lamb. I do hope we've given you something today to think about, friends, because you and I live in a world that's gone crazy. It's a mad world. It is a world today that has turned its back upon Almighty God. And the judgment of God is beginning to fall. And that, my friend, is the proof today. We are demonstrating the fact that 
only sinners are born into this world, and that all men need the saving grace of God. They need the shed blood of Christ to pay the penalty for their sins. Now today, friends, we come to another unusual section of the book of Leviticus. And when I say another unusual section, I mean just that, and that the book of Leviticus is unusual any way that you look at it or any way that you take it. Every part of it's unusual. And it has a resounding spiritual message for us in this hour. I'm sure that you saw that in the last chapter, the law concerning motherhood. Now we come to another quite unusual thing. Right in the heart of the book of Leviticus is this section on leprosy, of all things. Somebody says, is that practical for today? May I say you will not find anything more practical than this particular section that we're coming into except that section we've just left because this entire book speaks to us in this hour. And this is a section in which you can label holiness unto the Lord. Or you can label it as we have in our outline, holiness in daily life. That is, God is concerned with his children's conduct. And we saw the food of God's people and the spiritual implications, the children of God's children in the last chapter, and the spiritual message that is there. And now we have the cleansing of the leprosy in chapters 13 and 14, and then 15, it's the cleansing of running issues, which actually all should be put together. In this chapter, it's the law concerning the control of leprosy. And leprosy is a fitting figure of speech for sin. In fact, this is what reveals the exceeding sinfulness of sin and sin in action you see in this particular section here. Now, if I should ask you the question, those of you that have been with us in this study on Leviticus... What would you say is that which we've emphasized more than anything else? And I am sure that many of you right now are saying sin. And if that's what you said, I want to ask you to go to the head of the class. You're exactly accurate. Listen to the Lord Jesus, for this is moral leprosy he's talking about. In Matthew 15:19 and 20, "...for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with one washing hands defileth not a man." These are the things that are coming out of the heart of man today. Again, let me say this. Here is a book on worship, the worship of a holy God. And in this section and a long section, it's all about leprosy and issues in the flesh. Leprosy and running issues of the flesh are the most accurate symbols of the manifestation of sin in the heart of man. 
the filthiness and repulsiveness of sin is represented in leprosy. The hopelessness and deadliness of sin is accurately portrayed. The leper who trudged down a hot, dusty oriental road crying out, unclean, unclean, was a reminder to the Israelite that he too was a moral leper who needed supernatural cleansing. And friend, let me say this to you today, especially those of you that think you're going to be saved by your works and that you don't need Christ as your Savior. May I say to you that if you went to heaven just like you are without Christ, you'd be what you and I both are down here without Christ, a moral leper, and you'd have to go through heaven crying out, unclean, unclean. An angel couldn't even touch you with a 20-foot pole. And God, you couldn't even come into his presence. This idea today that little man has some claim upon God. You have no claim upon him whatsoever. He owes you nothing, friends, and he owes me nothing. And this little earth that we live on, he could blot it out of existence, and it looks to me like in this vast universe he wouldn't even miss us. Thank God he would be just in doing that, but he certainly wouldn't love us. And he says he loves us. I'm glad he loves us. That's the only thing that could bind him to us today. This is the thought that God was driving home to the nation Israel. And he'd like to drive it home today, and it needs to be driven home in this land of ours that's forgotten about the exceeding sinfulness of sin in this hour in which we live. If you want to know how leprosy and sin compare Listen to the psalmist. I'm reading now Psalm 38, and I'll lift out certain verses. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there is no soundness in my flesh. For I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. That's the picture we are. That's the way we look to God. We think we look pretty good, don't we? But read that entire 38th Psalm, friends, and find out how loathsome sin is to God. Isaiah said, from the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. And then in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, it compares leprosy to sin and sin with leprosy. And healing, my friends, of a physical disease is nothing compared to the healing of sin, for it is moral leprosy today. Listen to Isaiah. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for what? Our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed of what? Why, we're healed of sin, of course. Not physical disease necessarily. We're going to get that and we get a new body, but we don't all have that today, and I'm not sure he promised that here. Somebody says, can you be sure of that? Because a lot of people think all he's talking about is physical disease. Will you listen to Peter? And I think he's quite an authority on this. He was there with the Lord, you know. In 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he says, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed." And here it's clear we're talking about sin, that old leprosy, that moral leprosy that man has today. Now you have, again, Peter's making it very clear. By whose stripes you're healed of what? We were dead in sins. And he bare our sins in his own body on the tree. Now, physical disease is the manifestation of sin. But behind disease, germs is sin, friends. That's what brought them into the world. Where did disease germs come from to begin with? They frankly feel that venereal diseases... I talked to a doctor about it that was a specialist in this field. He was a very wonderful Christian, by the way. And he told me, he said, it looks as if all social diseases came from filthiness. Just filthiness. Well, believe me... This crowd that don't take a bath also are indulging in sex to the nth degree. And they tell us today they're eaten up with venereal disease. May I say to you, that's all a picture of sin. What a picture that we have here. I think there are two important considerations which we should take into account as we get into this chapter. First, the Bible does not agree with the generally accepted view that leprosy was incurable in that day. Because when you read over in the 14th chapter, verse 2, "...this shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest." Now, that's very important to see. Apparently, they were being cured in that day. And they do have a cure for it today. There were notable cures of leprosy which were supernatural. For instance, that of Naaman, who had to go dip in the dirty Jordan River. And I agree with old Naaman that that Jordan is a dirty river. Frankly, and I looked at it, I had a feeling I'd like to be baptized in it. And don't misunderstand me. I don't attach any particular importance to that. And you know, when I saw that Jordan River, I changed my mind. You know why? I don't think I'd cleanse you. I think it'd get you dirty. And old Naaman said, I don't want to dip in it. But he had to, and he was cleansed of leprosy. And it's taught by some expositors that Job had leprosy. And there's no scientific diagnosis of the disease in that day. I think oftentimes the prognosis was incorrect. And a man naturally got well in that day of something else. He may have called it supernatural, but it wasn't. And the medicines of that early day did affect a cure. I don't think that can be denied at all. And today they use this Macugra oil, and that, they say, is a cure for leprosy. That is, certain kinds of leprosy. And I think this chapter and the following that we're going to look at 
do not contain a cure for leprosy. And that, by the way, should be understood. This chapter gives instructions to the priest on how a case of leprosy is to be determined and then measures to be taken to prevent it spreading in the camp. And then, after it is cleansed, the ritual that was to be gone through. But what is presented here is no cure for it. That is a big mistake. It was considered a contagious and dread disease, and in most instances, it was fatal. We find in chapter 14, when we get there, it deals with the ceremonial cleansing of the leper after his cure, and not the cure itself, because there's no cure presented here in any way whatsoever. Now, I think I need to say something else about this section. It's not a scientific treatise on the detection, prevention, and cure of leprosy. You have more or less the prognosis of it, but not the cure given here. And there's no attempt to give a medical diagnosis of the disease. The diagnosis was a practical one, which was adjusted to the knowledge of that day, and with direct and definite spiritual lessons for this day. The ritual was ceremonial, rather than curative, and we need, friends, to keep that in mind. And I'd have you to remember that. Now, there have been some discussion on the part of certain Christian physicians as to whether leprosy, as we know it, is the disease that the Mosaic system is considering. There has been much written in the past which is pro and con. And there's ample evidence that the disease of leprosy described in this chapter and the next one is the eliophantiasis, or leprosy as we understand this loathsome and death-dealing disease. It not only includes this particular disease, but as we shall see, all skin diseases, running issues, including cancer, tumors, and social diseases. And this is abundantly illustrated when we get over to the 15th chapter. Now, we are going to have occasion, I think, to amplify some of these things when we get into them. After all, only the first stages of leprosy are described here, as by the time the person is declared a leper, he is then ejected from society. Now, in this chapter, we have the cleansing of leprosy, not the cure of leprosy. The cleansing of the leper after he has been cured. You have here the diagnosis of a new case of leprosy in the first eight verses. Then you have the diagnosis of an old case of leprosy, 9 through 17. Then you have the diagnosis of leprosy from a boil or burn. And then the diagnosis of leprosy localized in head or beard. And then the diagnosis of the garments of lepers. Now, will you notice? First, the diagnosis of a new case of leprosy. Verse 1 and 2 I'm reading. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man shall have in his skin of his flesh a rising, a scab, a bright spot, and it be in the skin of his flesh like the plague of leprosy, then he shall be brought unto Aaron the priest, or unto one of the sons of the priest. Compared to modern techniques of diagnosis, the methods of Leviticus seem very crude, 
and the procedure was adapted to the knowledge of the day. The diagnosis was not done in order to prescribe a treatment, but rather a religious ritual. That's all. And I think that that should be stated emphatically before any valid criticism can be made. Very frankly, friends, I happen to know, since I have cancer, how that's done. When I first went to my doctor, he looked at it. And just by looking, he came to the conclusion it was cancer. But it was not until a biopsy, the test was made in a scientific way that they decided that they should operate. You see, after all, they could know a great deal about it in that day. And the priests literally handled, I think, thousands of cases. So they knew what to look for. And maybe this isn't as crude as some people think it is. But for that day, it's a pretty good system, friends. Now, the emphasis here is upon the spiritual ceremony rather than the physical catharsis. Three symptoms are identified here. A rising, and that's a boil, a scab, that would be a small tumor, and a bright spot. Now, these were symptoms. But the person having such a symptom need not necessarily be a leper. The first step was to bring the patient with a symptom to Aaron or one of the priests. And just so, any manifestation of sin, either small or great, should be brought immediately to our great high priest, who is also the great physician. And I believe that today the child of God ought to come to the Lord Jesus immediately when he sins, if he's a child of God and see whether this thing's going to break out in leprosy or not. Turn the case over to the great physician. And I think that when you're physically sick, you ought to take it to the great physician, the Lord Jesus. I got such an ugly letter not so long ago. Oh, how cruel people can be. They sure know how to hurt you. This man wrote and said, Now, if I wasn't stubborn and proud and I would humble myself and go to a certain healer, I'd be healed. And because I hadn't is the reason I hadn't been healed. Well, I got a lot of sins, friends, but that just doesn't happen to be one of them. I'd go anywhere if I had faith to believe that it could be. But you see, I took my case to the great physician, the Lord Jesus. And I go there when I sin, and I go there when I get sick. And I find out that's the place to take it first. And then I believe that you do sensible things. When it has to do with sin, I think that he cleanses you, and that means you're not to go back to the pig pen and get dirty again. And then if it's a disease, I think he intends for me to go to my Christian doctor because I think he gave him the gift that he has. And so we are to confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now in verse 3, "...and the priest shall look on the plague of the skin of the flesh." Now you see, there's no rash judgment made. This thing was handled carefully and over a period of time. When the hair in the plague is turned white and the plague in sight be deeper than the skin of his flesh, it is a plague of leprosy, and the priest shall look on him and pronounce him unclean. Now, if a man goes in, he has this breaking out on his skin, and the priest puts him up for certain days. He looks at that carefully, 
and all of a sudden it begins to disappear. He dismisses it. But suppose that the hair that's in that rising turns white, that's becoming dead. It shows that this thing is beneath the skin, and then the thing begins to manifest itself in an angry way. Then he knows he's in trouble. The Lord Jesus Christ has made a pretty good examination of us spiritually, by the way. He's the great physician, as we said, and he brought us into his clinic. And you know what he said about you and me? He says, their throat is an open sepulcher. Oh, that's awful. Talk about spiritual halitosis. With their tongues, they've used deceit. And what does your doctor do when you go to him? My doctor, when I go to him, he says, open your mouth. And he looks at my throat. The great physician does, too. He says, their throat is an open sepulcher. What's the second thing your doctor does? Mine says, stick out your tongue. Well, a great physician does that. With their tongues, they've used deceit. The easiest thing in the world for man to do today is to lie. And David said, I said in my haste, all men are lies. Old Dr. Carroll one time said in class, he said, I've had a long time to think it over, and I still agree with David. And the poison of asp is under their lips. He probes in the mouth whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their way. When God says all have sinned, he means that all of us are unclean in his sight, and we're spiritual lepers, and he's not running a leper calling in heaven. He cures them before you get there. And leprosy, by the way, is an accurate picture of sin in many ways. The Schofield Bible lists three ways, and I'm going to add to that. Let me mention the three they have. First, it's in the blood. Second, it becomes overt in loathsome ways. And we had a drunk that came in off the street, and he sat in the warm auditorium, and all of a sudden he collapsed and fell out of the seat. They had to call the ambulance, and the time the ambulance got here, he was a mess, friends. May I say to you, sin is loathsome in many ways. And it's in the blood we inherit it. We are sinners by nature. And then, third, it's incurable by human means. That, of course, is not exactly accurate. It wasn't accurate then, and it's not accurate today. But it certainly reveals that It's a horrible disease, and it is a fitting type of sin. And as Kellogg wrote, from among all diseases, leprosy has been selected by the Holy Spirit to stand as the supreme type of sin as seen by God. Then I'd like to add now some other ways. It begins in a small way, a rising or a scab or a bright spot. And finally, it'll deliver a death-dealing blow. And what's at first very small becomes a very frightful and dreadful thing. Lepers in most countries today are isolated from the populace and are segregated in hospitals or colonies. Now, most of us who have viewed pictures brought home by missionaries from Africa or Asia or some other place have seen how repulsive leprosy can be. A missionary, by the way, of a century ago, William Thompson in The Land and the Book, has this, and I'm quoting, "...as I was approaching Jerusalem, 
I was startled by the sudden apparition of a crowd of beggars, sans eyes, that is, without eyes, without nose, without hair, without everything. They held up their handless arms. Unearthly sounds gurgle through their throats without pallets. In a word, I was horrified. You know, sin seems to be so infinitesimal in a little child. But finally, it breaks out on a campus. <laughs> and then it goes into the world. And before long, you have a great sinner. After all, Lenin and Stalin and Hitler were one-time little babies. And they started off all right. And by the way, unless little Willie's discipline and is led to a saving knowledge of Christ, he's going to be a holy terrorist someday. And they are today. Talk about juvenile delinquents. We've got adult delinquents today, but they were little babies at one time. Then there's a fifth thing about leprosy. Leprosy not only progresses slowly from a small beginning, but it progresses surely. From just a little beginning, it advances steadily to a tragic crisis. Dr. Thompson again describes it. He says it comes on by degrees in different parts of the body. The hair falls from the head and eyebrows. The nails loosen, decay, and drop off. Joint after joint of the fingers and toes shrink up and slowly fall away. The gums are absorbed. The teeth disappear. The nose, the eyes, the tongue, and the palate are slowly consumed. And finally, the wretched victim sinks into the earth and disappears. Well, that's what sin is. God says in Ezekiel 18:4, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. But the soul that sinneth, it shall die. James puts it in James 1:15. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Leprosy is a living death. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Like leprosy, sin destroys the whole man. Both are corrosive in their effect, working slowly and surely until finally they break out in an angry display that eventuates in death. No man ever went wrong overnight. Leprosy does not kill in a day. It's not like a heart attack. That's the way sin is. The leper walking dead, zombies, if you please. Oh, Paul says, "...you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins." And final desperate and inescapable end of sin and leprosy's death. Then there is the sixth thing about leprosy. It's not a disease which produces sharp and unbearable pain as do some other diseases. Leprosy keeps the man sad and restless. Likewise, sin produces a restlessness and sadness in a man that's evident in our contemporary culture. I remember reading the account of this Suzuki, and I forget her last name. It just occurred to me about her. She 
is a little Japanese girl, very attractive, that became a nightclub singer. And she told about singing in the nightclubs and said the people before her, the women, had on mink and ermine and that the men with them attempting to spend money. Her comment was, none of them are happy. <laughs> Walking zombies, if you please. Suffering from an awful case of spiritual leprosy. Got itchy feet. What a picture. The crowds that flock today to the places of amusement, like Hollywood, New York, Los Angeles, Miami, Las Vegas. They're not a happy crowd. Have you ever looked at that crowd? I went in one of these places in Las Vegas. We went through there, and my wife told me I ought not to do it. But I walked in one of those places, and man, I've never seen so many of these one-armed bandits that were there. And then I went back, and they were shooting craps on a green felt-covered table. And there was a fellow that was sitting there, and I, you know, sticking my nose in where I got no business, I just walked up and looked at him, and I said to him, I said, you winning? I wish you could have seen the look on his face. He looked like that he was attending the funeral of his mother-in-law, the way the fellow looked, and he just grunted at me, and I saw I wasn't wanted, so I walked out of the place. They weren't happy. I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't care for that. May I say to you, our freeways and highways are crowded today with cars filled with restless folk going nowhere fast. You see, we are a generation of people with itchy feet. they got leprosy. I tell you, sin's an awful thing. And then it reaches the place where you don't have any feeling. And Paul said, "...who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness." to work all uncleanness with greediness. And then leprosy, the seventh thing, is thought to be hereditary. Whether it is or not, I'm not raising a medical question. Sin is. When education assumes that the moral nature of man is capable of improvement, traditional Christianity assumes that the moral nature of man is corrupt or absolutely bad where it's assumed in education that an outside human agent may be instrumental in the moral improvement of man. In traditional Christianity, it's assumed that the agent is God. And even so, the moral nature of man's not improved, but it's exchanged for a new one. What a tremendous statement that is. And then finally, and this is the eighth, leprosy and sin separate from God. You know, it seemed cruel back there that the leper was not only shut out from society, but also from the sanctuary. But it must be remembered that God is holy and the author of righteousness and cleanness, too. Leprosy, I think, is indeed a fitting symbol of sin that separates from God. And I've spent a long time at the beginning of this chapter because it's important, friends, to see the analogy here and get the great spiritual message for us today because there's not much being said about sin. Our problem is a sin problem. Now notice verse 4. If the bright spot be white in the skin of the flesh and in sight be not deeper than the skin and the hair thereof be not turned white, then the priest shall shut up him that hath the plague seven days." Now, there's no haste, you see, in making a judgment. 
You see, God's slow to anger in his relationship with us. He grants every opportunity to the sinner. God's very patient. The Lord is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means, though, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Friends, that's not in the New Testament. That's in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. But in the New Testament, Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, "...the Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." The priest put up this man, and it was leprosy, he thought, but he's patient with him. But the patient is shut up for seven days. And God has the world shut up in quarantine because, my friend, sin is the disease. And you know, maybe that's the reason God's not going to let man get very far out in his universe. It was rather amusing. They brought men from the moon to see whether they brought any disease down to this earth, as if we don't have enough. But the point is, did we leave any diseases up there? God hasn't let us go very far because we're quarantined. He's concluded all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. He shut them up together is the Scripture. God has shut them up together in unbelief. And the Scriptures concluded all under sin. And he shut up together. That's what concluded means. And the priest, now, verse 5, shall look on him the seventh day, and behold, if the plague in his sight be at a stay, and the plague spread not in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up seven days more. You see, after seven days, the priest makes another inspection. Now, if it's still an element of uncertainty, he permits him to go on. You see, we need to be very careful in making rash judgment of others. You know, it's a serious matter, friends, to make a false charge against another believer. You remember Paul said, "...against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses." I've made a rule never to let anyone come in and criticize an officer unless the officer's present to hear it. And do you know how many that I've heard in the past 21 years? Just one. We need to be careful. Then we're told here, the priest shall look on him again the seventh day. Another seven, you see. Now, if the plague in the skin is not spread in 14 days, but's improved, it obviously was not leprosy, and the man's pronounced clean. And these were sweet words indeed to be told that. And the man could sing a jubilee song. And the Lord Jesus, you remember, said to the leper, Be thou clean. And he can say to the spiritual leper today, The sinner, your sins are forgiven you. And that's the reason he healed down here, friends. He healed physical disease to demonstrate that he's the Savior that can forgive sins. Those scribes there said, Who can forgive sins but God? And he says, Well, I'm going to say to this man, I'm going to make him walk. This poor impotent man that you will know 
that the one who can make him walk can also forgive his sins. That's the important thing after all. Then we're told here that there's the other side of the picture. If the disease is spread in the skin, he'll make another inspection. That's the third inspection. Does God give a man a second chance? Why, he'll give a man a thousand chances if it takes that, friends. There are those that have made a profession and they went back on it. Then you have here in verses 9 through 17 the diagnosis of an old case of leprosy. Let me not read here. I'll let you read this section. But will you notice what he's saying here? that apparently leprosy lay dormant in some cases, or it was arrested by some method, although not healed. And this was the case of an old leprosy, as it's called here. Shall we call it, for instance, chronic leprosy? There is no need to put this man up for a period of observation. He is definitely a leper. Now today they're hardened sinners, and they're so obviously sinners that even their best friends tell them. And under this class would come, well, the hard sinners. And they are the spiritual mafia. They'd like to get out from under the slavery of alcohol, but they are not interested. The same applies to the dope addict. Only a supernatural remedy can help in cases like this. And there's the polished and slick and sophisticated church member. He's unsaved. But he doesn't believe he has leprosy, and he resents being told that he's a lost sinner. The hardened sinner is easier to reach than this fellow here that doesn't think he has leprosy. Then we have here the another aspect of old leprosy. It's labeled in this section, old leprosy. Although the entire body is covered, it does not necessarily follow that the case is hopeless. The remarkable statement here in this section is that if the flesh has turned white, the patient is declared clean. This seems so clear to indicate that no sin is hopeless. And that was what Isaiah cried out, Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. But it's not necessary, Isaiah said. And that's what God was saying to them. Because then he said he had a remedy. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What a wonderful section here, and I wish we could go into more detail. Now we have here another section, verses 18 through 28. We have the diagnosis of leprosy from a boil or burn. Now, this deals with the leprosy, which comes from a boil. And a boil was to be closely inspected because of a possibility of leprosy beginning there, just as a small sore may become cancerous. And the same process is followed in a new case of leprosy. The white hair in the boil indicated deep-seated trouble. And so the seven days of inspection were permitted the priest to determine the direction the boil would take. And there's always the danger of old sins spreading and becoming malignant. Oftentimes you hear a new convert speak of deliverance from some evil habit, 
I remember several years ago, I had a man that was a drunken alcoholic. He accepted Christ as his Savior, and then he got very sick, and I went to see him. And I found out he really wasn't sick of anything but one thing. The place reeked of alcohol when I went into his room, and you could tell it. And he began to weep and said he'd gone back. Well, frankly, you just feel like taking a fellow like that and turning him across your knee and paddling him, but won't do a bit of good. May I say that the leprosy can be cured here. We have a Savior, and a careful inspection should be made. And we don't want to condemn him too soon. been so easy to walk in there and ball him out and walk out. And he'd have felt badly, and I would have felt badly, and we wouldn't have helped each other. Now we have here, instead of a boil being the basis of leprosy, here it's termed a hot burning. And the hot burning is rather an indefinite identification. It could be caused by a red-hot object or an infection that has fever in it. At any rate, there was a danger of leprosy developing. And this seems to confirm the Scripture that teaches us that the flesh must be kept under close observation for it can break out in the most alarming manner. You remember Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And there are other wonderful passages in this connection, like the sixth chapter of Romans and 1 Corinthians 9:27. Paul said he kept under his body. We need to be very careful. And then you have here the diagnosis of leprosy that's localized in head of beard. That's 29 through 44. It might break out in the most unlikely spots. And if it were hidden in the hair of the head of beard, it might not be discovered. And special observations should be made. But it's to be examined rather carefully. And you know, sin insinuates itself sometimes into the chief places in the church, in a Sunday school teacher's meeting, or in a board meeting, or in the missionary society. And it enervates and vitiates the witness of an entire body, just as it works its way in. And it may be that the plague in the hair beard is not leprosy. And you have time to make a judgment. We need to be careful about these things. And then we come down to the disposal of the garments. And the garments of a leper were first to be rent, just as torn as in the case of death. The leper was considered a dead man. And the sinner spreads his sin wherever he goes. His disease is contagious, and he infects others. Any father has a right to live his own life as he pleases, but he has no right to take a precious son to hell with him. And there are a lot of fathers doing that today. The leper defiles that which is around him, and that's what this teaches here. Oh, it reveals a great deal about the contagious diseases and the fact that even the garments can carry the infection and spread it, and sin today can be spread, and it is spreading, my beloved. 